Welcome to the Beacon Broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon Broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com beaconbaptist.com The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. We are continuing in our study of the Lord's High Priestly Prayer in John chapter 17. And in this prayer, Christ begins by praying for himself in verses 1 through 5, praying for his apostles in verses 6 through 19, and praying for all of his people in verses 20 through 26. And yet, though that makes a very simple and I think fairly clear division in what we find in, in the chapter, there is a fair amount of overlapping And so what Christ says in regard to his apostles in verse 6 rests upon some things that have been said in his own request to the Father in verses 1 through 5, and many of the things that are said in relation to the apostles also apply to all believers. And so these are not hard and fast distinctions with no no, um, correspondence with what goes on on either side of the distinctions, but rather they are general distinctions which nevertheless have application to other categories as well. And so we're going to take it up where we left off last week, talking about the sovereignty of God, talking about the doctrine of election, which is what is referred to as Christ begins to talk about and pray for his apostles. And we still have a good number of things that I think it would be helpful and advisable to say regarding that teaching. And so please stay tuned as we continue in that vein on this Sunday, February 4. Thank you for joining us and thank you for your consideration of our financial needs to continue to teach on this station. All right, let me read beginning at verse 1. Jesus spoke these words lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, I have finished the work which you have given me to do, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. 
We have moved, as I say, from the section where Christ prays for himself into the section where he prays for his apostles. But I also noted the overlapping, and you'll see that more clearly as we move along. But Christ is praying for those who were given to him by the Father and those who first belonged to the Father. Again, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now the question is, in what sense did they formerly belong to the world and now have been given to Christ? And if we think in terms of the apostles, and that is who he's clearly praying for now, it would be it would be appropriate, I suppose would be the right word, to think of that first, that first concept that they ha- you have given them to me out of the world as applying to the 12 disciples of Christ who formerly were in the world and have been given to Christ as his disciples, although that doesn't, that doesn't fit neatly like a, like a, well, <laughs> a well-designed glove because... It's clear that some of the disciples were in the world, or at least were not were not uh, completely immersed in in religious activity, such as Matthew, the tax collector at the seat of customs, and so forth. And yet, it's also clear that that a number of them were already involved in serving God as disciples of John, the forerunner of Christ. They had already become his disciples before they became Christ's disciples. So then the question would be, in what sense were that they have been given to him out of the world? In that case, it seems to me like it might be more appropriate to say they have transferred their religious focus from the forerunner of the Messiah, to the Messiah himself, exactly what John was sent to do. He, he did not intend for his disciples to continue to be his disciples. He intended for his disciples to become Christ's disciples, though some of them seemed unable or unwilling to do that. So even though you can, you can see a, a, a possible application of that phrase, you gave them you have given them to me out of the world. That doesn't fit the situation as well as some might think, but if you're thinking in terms of giving them in salvation, then every one of us, every one of them, every one of us, first of all, belonged to the world, and then we were rescued out of the world and brought to Christ, right? And that does fit the language very nicely, I guess I would say perfectly. You have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. Again, if we're thinking in terms of the apostles becoming apostles, the 12 disciples of Christ becoming the disciples of Christ, then in what sense did they first belong to the Father before they belonged to the Son? Unless we just take the sense that everybody belongs to the Father by virtue of 
God giving us life, and we owe our life to him. But in what sense would they distinctly belong to the Father when they didn't belong to the Son and then were given to the Son? But if we think in terms of the doctrine of election, that fits perfectly. God chose people to give to the Son. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. And so this definitely points to the doctrine of election. And what is the doctrine of election? It is that those who belong to the Son are given to the Son by God's sovereign choice. God is creator. God is sovereign ruler. God decides what shall take place in his universe. And God has chosen to give some people to Jesus Christ. And he does so on the basis of his own choice, not upon the basis of man's choice. We talked about this last week. Some people explain the doctrine of election as if it is the doctrine of ratification, that God knows what man would choose even before he makes the choice, because, of course, God knows the future. And so, therefore, knowing who would choose him, he says, I will choose them. But that wouldn't be God choosing. That would be man choosing. That would just be God recognizing man's choice. That would just be God ratifying man's choice. But that really wouldn't be God choosing, would it? That wouldn't be God electing. That wouldn't be God selecting. But you say, well, if you, if you take the doctrine of election in the way that you're explaining it, then man's decision to follow Jesus becomes a ratification because he's doing that after God has already chosen him first. And I would say to that, bingo, that is exactly what the Bible teaches. Now, it is not generally clear to most people that when they make a decision for Christ, if you want to use that language, that's not really biblical language, but it's very common evangelical language. But when a person chooses Christ, when a person decides for Christ, when a person makes that decision for Christ, very few have a sense that they are doing so because they were first chosen by God to do that, and that God had to work in their hearts to enable them to do that. That, that isn't the sense which we have at the time that it takes place. It's something we learn afterwards. As after we become Christians and begin to study the Bible and are able to understand it in a way that we could not before, we come to this amazing truth that he chose me before I chose him. And the reason why that is not really ratification is because we are not God. We don't know the future. We don't know that we have been chosen. And so when we make that choice, we're not ratifying the choice that God has made in our consciousness. We, we aren't conscious of doing that. In our minds, we are making a choice, a free will choice, a decision. But later we learn that it was not a decision that we made prior to God's choice. It was a decision we made following God's choice, and it was a decision that we were only able to make because God chose first. Tis not that I did choose thee, Lord, that could never be, 
my heart would still refuse thee, if thou hadst not chosen me. Goes the song that comes to my mind right now, and I don't have it in front of me, and I can't give you the rest of the words, but that's, that, that hits the nail on the head exactly as to what we find in the Bible. Do you see what I'm saying? If you turn it around and make God's choice, you're explaining election in terms of God choosing whom he knew by his omniscience so he can see into the future. He knew who would choose him, and so he said, okay, you've chosen me, so now I will choose you. But that's not a choice. That's a ratifying action, which... In God's case, he would know that's what he was doing because if he knew the future and he knew who made the choice, then he has to know that he is ratifying man's choice. And that would certainly defy the many, many texts that talk about God's choosing. It would completely destroy the idea of divine election. But turn it around the other way. When man makes his choice for Christ, though it is in response to God's choice, he doesn't know that. He doesn't have the same knowledge that God has. Man is not omniscient. He doesn't know that God chose him first. He doesn't know that he wasn't able in himself to make that choice. He learns all these things later. He learns about his true condition. He learns that the natural man, which is what all of us are before we are saved, before we are constituted a spiritual man, that the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. He cannot know them. He cannot know them. They're foolishness unto him because they're spiritually discerned. Well, if we can't know the things of the Spirit of God until the Spirit of God enables us to know them, then we can't choose Christ until Christ's Christ's choice of us, which in this case is is um, characterized as the Father's choice of us, and then giving us to Christ to enable us to understand, to enable us to know, to to make the the things of Christ not foolish to us as they were before. That all requires a work of God prior to our choice, and that's exactly what this teaches. Therefore, it is properly called, and this is not a biblical term, but it is it describes a biblical teaching. This is properly, therefore, understood as unconditional election. That is based upon nothing in man seen or foreseen because it's a choice that God has made. It's unconditional. There's no condition prior to God's making this choice. To turn it around and make the choice to be based upon God foreseeing our choice and then ratifying our choice is what would be called accurately conditional election. That election is conditioned upon what man does first. And that's totally contrary to what the Bible teaches. God chooses apart from man's choice. God chooses apart from what man does or would do. God chooses apart from what man produces or man is inclined to. All of those all of those things, all of those spiritual inclinations come afterward. They come as a result.
Now, there are many objections to the doctrine of election. Some say, well, that can't be right because that would invalidate man's ability to choose. Well, the truth of the matter is, the Bible teaches plainly that man has no ability to choose good, to choose righteousness, to choose Christ, until first God does a miraculous work within him to give him the desire and ability to make such a choice. I just quoted the verse in Corinthians, the natural man receives not, receives not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. He can't. He's not able to. They are foolishness unto him always until God does a work within him. They are only spiritually discerned or spiritually understood. So it has to be by the work of the Spirit of God to enable him to understand. And of course, that text in, in John that says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That tells us what man will choose, what man will desire, what man will do left to himself. What will he do? He will choose darkness. He will choose sin. He'll, he'll run from the light and run toward sin and darkness. That's his, the choice he will always make until the Holy Spirit of God changes his heart and changes his desires. And then he has, uh, he has a new heart. He has new desires. He has new understanding. He has a new appreciation. He will now love Christ and love righteousness. Somebody has said that a sinner seeks God like a thief is looking for a policeman. Of course not. He's trying to get as far away from a policeman as he can. Some people, every time they see a policeman, they, they are filled with a certain amount of of fear and terror because they've done things that are wrong and they don't know but what that policeman is looking for them they're always trembling in fear they don't they don't want they're not looking for a policeman they're looking to stay as far away from policemen as possible where do you think all this impetus that we've had lately for hating policemen criticizing policemen doing away with policemen defunding policemen and so forth where does that come from it comes from man's sinful inclination to get away from any authority that can hold him accountable for his sin, his, his wrongdoing. And who is with, with that disposition, that disposition of every lost man, who in that condition is going to go looking for God? But if God comes looking for him, well, that's a different story. And then God finds him. He, ne he always gets his man. And God makes changes within him that give him different desires. And with those desires, he chooses to follow Christ. And his sense is that that's, he's done that. He's made that choice. And in, in fact, he has. He, it really is a real choice that he has made. But it's only later that he finds out that, wait a minute, I wouldn't have made that choice. I couldn't have made that choice unless the Spirit of God first did a work within me. And why did he do that work within me? And that's, here's why. Because God the Father determined to do that work. God the Father claimed you and then gave you to the Son. Exactly what we read here in verse 6. Jesus praying to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word.
So, does the doctrine of election render invalid man's right and ability to choose? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't interfere with his right to choose, but it does change. It does. It does enlarge his ability to choose. That's what happens. Does man have a free will? Yes and no. It's free in the sense in that he can freely choose, but the scope of his choices are limited by his nature. And if he doesn't have a capacity to desire Christ and to desire righteousness and to desire truth and to desire the light, if that's not in his nature, then, then he's always going to choose according to what he desires. And if he has only sinful desires, desires for darkness, desires for sin, desires not to, be, to come to God, who will, who will reveal his sin and hold him accountable for it, then he's never going to choose in that direction. So the doctrine of election means that God does a work in the hearts of those whom he has chosen for himself to give them new capabilities and to expand their their um, what should I say their capacity for choice because now they have a capacity to choose righteousness and truth and light and Christ and salvation and things eternal that they had no desire for, no no understanding of, no capacity for before, but now they do. So does the doctrine of election invalidate man's right to choose? Not at all. Every man has a right to choose. The problem is not with his will. Well, it is. The problem is he has a will that has been Dis, dis, I started to say destroyed. It's been damaged by sin. It hasn't been destroyed in the sense that he no longer is able to choose. It's just that, uh, here I go saying the same thing all over again, it's just that his ability to choose is skewed in one direction only because of his sinful nature. So election starts the process. That's not there's more that has to be done, but selection or the election marks out those that God says to the Holy Spirit, you go to that one and you do a work within him and you change his heart and give him new desires and then he will have the ability to choose. So to, to say the quest to make the statement, election destroys man's right and ability to choose, we've got to separate those two. It does nothing to destroy man's right to choose, but it does wonderful things to man's ability to choose because it gives him an ability he did not have before. Well, some say the doctrine of election cannot be true because if that be true, then it renders the invitations in the Bible meaningless. If only those who are chosen by God and within whom God's Spirit does a work, are able to respond to these gospel invitations, then they aren't true invitations, are they? Well, yes, they are. What it, it, it doesn't render the invitations of the Bible meaningless, but it may 
require a different way of understanding them. It may require a correction in your concept of those invitations. You see, gospel invitations are the outward call. Election marks one out for an inward call. And the inward call and the outward call must merge in gospel invitations for anyone to believe and come to Christ. Those who fail to respond to the outward call are just simply doing what their nature inclines them to do. You might even make it stronger and say what their nature compels them to do. And yet, having rejected the gospel invitation, it, it adds that rejection adds to their culpability, their accountability. It renders them even more inexcusable in their sin than they were before. But when the outward call of the gospel is joined to the inward call of the Holy Spirit, then that gospel invitation produces salvation. It produces followers of Christ. It produces people who have decided to follow Jesus. I'm looking at Acts 16.14. I was turning the pages just a moment ago. And that's the account of Paul and his missionary team coming to Philippi. And it says, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to, to understand what Paul was preaching. The Lord opened her heart to give her an appreciation for the gospel invitation that Paul was extending to her by showing this group of women that the promised Messiah from the Old Testament scriptures had to suffer and die, and that Jesus of Nazareth is that God-sent Messiah. Now, some hearing that message said, I don't believe it. Meaning, evidently, the Lord has not opened their heart to heed the things that were spoken in the gospel invitation. But in Lydia's case, the reason she became a follower of Christ is because the Lord opened her heart. He had to do an operation within her soul before she would become receptive to the message, to the preaching of, of Paul and the invitation to come to Christ by faith and claim him by faith. And when God did an operation in her soul, described here in terms of opening her heart, then she gladly embraced that message. And if there were others who heard the same message whose hearts the Lord did not open, then they did not embrace it. They did not believe it. They did not welcome it. They did not, did not um, endorse it. In fact, generally, those people will, at least in time, become hostile toward it, enemies of it. But those whom the Lord, whose hearts the Lord opens become receptive to it. And that's what it takes. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit before people will savingly believe the message of the gospel. And so, no, the doctrine of election doesn't render the invitations of the Bible meaningless. It, 
It's what is necessary to make them effective. Well, some will say that doctrine violates justice. And again, I would say it may violate your concept of what you think is, is just, but a proper understanding would not lead you in that direction at all. Bible justice declares that everyone is worthy of condemnation and God owes no mercy to anyone. And the doctrine of election simply extends mercy to some in the face of justice. God's not obligated to do that for anyone. God's not obligated to do that for everyone. It's a wonderful mercy that God does that for some, and it turns out to be a great many sums that God does that for. Until next week, Greg Barkman saying good day. May God give you his eternal peace.